Let's pray. God, we praise you and we thank you so much for loving us. As we've just read in your word, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God, we rest on that promise. We cling to that promise. We thank you that a holy, just, sinless God because of Jesus' death on the cross, can reconcile and call sinful humans, us, your children, because of Jesus' death and sacrifice on the cross. I pray this morning you be with us as we look in your word. I pray, Lord, we're encouraged by your love for us, that we're encouraged and reminded of, of what your love cost. So I pray for wisdom and discernment as we go through your text together. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning once again. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 3. We've been going through John's gospel uh, expositionally, verse by verse. And just really the, the main highway or road that we're going down is asking the question, who is Jesus and why does it matter? Or who is Jesus and so what? What do we do with that? So this morning we're going to be back in John. Last week we took a break for Mother's Day and we were in Titus. So we're actually going to be finishing up a conversation that takes place between Jesus and Nicodemus. Um, so John chapter 3, and as you're turning there, hopefully you're there already, I want to ask you a question. If you had the opportunity to share one Bible verse with millions of people at once, what Bible verse would you choose? You don't have to answer out loud, just take a moment and think about it. If you could share one Bible verse with millions of people what verse would you choose to share? On January 8, 2009, the Florida Gators were playing for the College National Championship. Again, that's college football. And their quarterback, Tim Tebow, found himself asking this question. He decided to write John 3.16 on his eye black. You know how the players wear the black under their eyes? He put John and then 3.16 on the other side of his eye black. During that game, they won that game. During that game, over 94 million people Googled that verse, John 3.16. The Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, saw a tremendous increase in downloads for that day. Exactly three years later, to the exact date. So now we're going to fast forward to January 8, 2012. Tim Tebow found himself playing now in the NFL against the Steelers in the first round of the playoffs. They won in an exciting overtime game, and right before his post-game interview, his PR manager stopped him in the hallway and said, Tim, Tim, we got to talk. Don't we? Before you go out there, we have to talk. And he said, Tim, do you know what happened today? He's like, of course I do. We won. We, we beat the Steelers. We're, we're advancing in the playoffs. His manager, his PR manager said, no, no, Tim, listen. He said, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per rush were 3.16. Your yards per completion were 31.6. The ratings for the game that day were 31.6. Your time of possession was 31.6. And during that game, over 90 million people Googled John 3.16. Again, 3.16, 3.16, 3.16. It's a crazy story, and not only that, but it was the number one thing that was trending on Twitter and Facebook and social media that night. It's a crazy story, and in response to this, 
Tim Tebow shares this testimony. He shares this on the news networks because they have all these ratings. They know. And he says this, a lot of people say it's a coincidence, but I say big God. And I love that answer, right? It, sure, maybe it's a coincidence, but really? That's amazing. All of those stats, all his figures were 316, John 316. Like I mentioned before, this morning we're going to be finishing up a nighttime conversation that takes place between a Pharisee named Nicodemus and Jesus Christ. In these verses, we're actually going to look at and see the most popular, well-known, probably on the most coffee mugs, hanging on most walls, John 3.16. Jesus reveals to Nicodemus the importance, and this is a recap of two weeks ago, he reveals to Nicodemus the importance of a transformative faith of being born again. He tells him that no one, no man is able to enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. He tells Nicodemus that being born again only happens by the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. We also saw the lack of understanding in Nicodemus' heart, and that's where we ended a few weeks ago. And someone this past week, and, and he said I could give him credit, so I'm going to give Robbie credit. He said to me this past week, that Nicodemus didn't necessarily lack faith, but rather he had tremendous faith in his Jewishness, tremendous faith in his righteousness. His problem was his faith was in the wrong person. His faith was in his religion and not Jesus Christ. So as we go through the remainder of their time together, Jesus and Nicodemus, we're going to see Jesus reveal God's love in three different ways, or three characteristics of God's love. If you want to follow along in the bulletin, there are sermon notes if you want to follow and fill in the blank on that. But way number one, or that, that Jesus reveals the Father's love, is a gracious love. A gracious love. Let's read verse 14 and 15. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And right here we see Jesus, he points back to, to Nicodemus, he points and brings him back to the Old Testament. And Nicodemus, who would be a good Pharisee, would know his Bible. He knew the Torah. He knew what Jesus was talking about. In Numbers chapter 21, after the Israelites are delivered out of slavery in Egypt, they complained to Moses a lot, but they complained specifically about not having food. They said, why would God bring us out here just to die? At least we had food in Egypt. Maybe we should go back there and be slaves. At least we'll, be, we'll have full bellies. And through that, God provided them manna from heaven. And really, that's an image, or, or, or looking at that, the, really the point of that is God sustained and took care of his people. Later, years later, the Israelites cursed that same manna that God gave them. They called it worthless food. They complained to God. They complained to Moses. We just eating, we're eating worthless food. And as a result of their sin and rebellion, God sent judgment. He sent fiery serpents among the people as divine judgment against their sin. <clears throat> as the Israelites were being bitten and as they were dying, they came to Moses and they pleaded with him because Moses was their intercessor between them and God. And they said to Moses, they acknowledged their sin and said, Moses, we... Help us. What, pray to God. Please t send them, tell, tell them to send us help. And they pleaded and prayed to the Lord and asked him to remove the snake. Then God instructed Moses, and you might know this, to make a bronze serpent and to set it on a pole. 
And he commanded that everyone who was bitten by these serpents, bitten by the judgment of God, was to look at and, and, and see the bronze serpent on the pole, and they'll live. They'll live. In that story, in Numbers 21, we see that God enacts divine judgment, but not only that, he provides divine grace. Did, did you catch that there? The people complaining, calling a gift from God, manna worthless. They rebel, they sin against him. They complain to him, they grumble to him. God sends judgment, and guess what? He sends deliverance. He sends grace, divine grace with his judgment. God heals them, not the serpent. Years later, the Israelites will forget this. The serpent will become an idol for them eventually, and it gets destroyed because it becomes an idol. They worship it instead of God. The Israelites, after they acknowledge their guilt, their shame, their sin, they were delivered by God's gracious love, not their works, not their goodness, not their self-righteousness, but they're delivered by God's love for them. And by looking at the serpent, <clears throat> as they would look, they would show their faith in God. That they would listen and say, okay, if God commands us to look at the serpent that will be healed, we'll look at him. We trust in him. Our faith is in him. He will forgive us and he'll heal us. And that's what happened. And now what Jesus does is he's talking to Nicodemus, the ruler, the teacher of Israel, and he's making a connection between the serpent being lifted and now the Son of Man himself, Jesus, the Messiah, being lifted up. In verse 14, 15, he says, So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And notice that word, must. The Son of Man must be lifted up. It was necessary for us to have eternal life. The Son of Man had to be lifted, must have been lifted up. And this lifted up, that phrase is, is a twofold use here, or, or really definition throughout John's Gospel. It's used both in Jesus being lifted up on the cross and dying, and it's also the same for him being lifted up to glory after his resurrection. So the Son of Man was both lifted up on the cross and lifted up to glory. Jesus' death on the cross and his glory are connected. You don't have one without the other. A famous preacher said this, that the cross was the way to glory. Christ was glorified because of his death on the cross, what he did on the cross. And just as the Israelites had simply, all they had to do was look upon the serpent to be healed, whoever in faith alone looks to the crucified Christ, has their faith in Jesus, will be cured from sin's deadly bite, which the Bible says is eternal death, is death. Jesus' death on the cross shows us the gracious love of God. And I think we have to be honest with each other for a second. All right? so, so put your reputation, put your character aside, put your, your pride on, on, on hold for a minute here. But let's be honest. None of us deserve God's love. By the standard that was set in the Old Testament, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, we're all sinners. None of us deserve it. None of us can ever work hard enough and do enough good to earn it. The example I say with the youth group kids, because they're applying for different jobs, they're that age where they have to get a resume put together, I said it's the same as if you put all of your good things on a resume. Right? That's the best version of yourself that you would give a potential boss. You don't put the things that you, your weaknesses or the things you failed at on your resume. It's the best version of you. You give it to your boss. If you were to present God with your best version of yourself, your resume, apart from faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross, the Bible calls it useless. It calls it worthless. 
There's nothing we can do to earn it. The Bible calls us all sinners. And the punishment against sinning, a, uh, sinning against a holy and eternal God is eternal separation from Him. The Gospel is that God showed us His gracious love by sending Jesus, by sending Himself, the God-man Jesus, to humbly and graciously choose to take the death penalty on our behalf. Jesus wasn't held hostage by the, by the other members of the Trinity and saying, okay, Jesus, you, ha- you have to do it. And Jesus said, like, I don't want to do it. I don't want it. He willingly did it. He willingly gave up his life and died on the cross for our sins. He took the death penalty on our behalf. And just as the Israelites had to respond in faith for God's divine grace, so do we. We have to respond. John will continue to say this. He says in verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just praise God for his gracious love towards us. I think sometimes we get into the habit of, of, of we, we kind of puff ourselves up and we're like, yeah, I'm so good. I'm, I'm worthy of God's love. Look how good I am. And, and the Bible has a way of saying, you're wrong. Look how good God is. Not how good you are. Look how good God is. Despite our sinful condition, Despite even while we're still enemies, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And let me just tell you, that's gracious love. That's gracious love. The second thing we'll see, another characteristic of God's love in these verses, is we're going to see a costly love. A costly love. It's going to cost something. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. From these verses now, it seems like Jesus is doing like a discourse or he's talking to Nicodemus rather than a conversation. Nicodemus doesn't interject. There's no conversation. We don't see how he responds to Jesus' statements and claims right now. Instead, Jesus is now talking and he's revealing nature of God's love, his costly love. In the most well-known verse in the Bible, we see a couple of truths about God's love. The first is this, that there's nothing we can offer God to attract his love. It's based entirely on God's love for us. Now, for some of you, and this might be a few years you have to remember, but for me, I remember when, when I first met Stephanie, right, and I liked her, and I was like, well, I, I like her. Right? I wanted her to see the best version of me. Right? And what I mean by that is, is maybe I had to take an extra minute in the mirror to make sure my, my hair was kind of waved that way, that the pieces were you know, there. Maybe I, I would dress it nicer clothes, put on deodorant, because we worked at camp, so it's, it's, different, it's different in the camp world. Right? You, you, everybody smells at camp. But maybe put a little cologne on, right? I want to try to you know, make, have, have the best version of myself, offer the best to, to attract her love for me. Right? But in, the, in Scripture... We see that there's nothing we can do. We can't offer God anything to make him give us or or deserve or earn his love. It's based entirely on who he is, his goodness, and his love for us. The word love here, for God so loved, it's a version of the word agape. And most of you have heard this before about agape love in the Greek. It's a love that counts no price as being too high. 
It's a love that is unconcerned with the self and concerned with the greatest good of another. So it's not the love that you receive, rather it's the love that you give. So we see that God so agape, loved the world, right? He, his love, <clears throat> his goodness, unconcerned for himself, his greatest love, he loves the world. And the, world, the word for world here, cosmos, he's, it's a better defined as all people of the, of the world, regardless of ethnicity, right? Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to a Jewish Pharisee, someone who would believe in the Old Testament, that they would say, look, I'm a chosen, per- I'm a chosen nation. I'm, I'm Israel. God loves me no matter what I do. He loves me because I'm related to Father Abraham. And what Jesus is doing here with the word world, he's revealing to Nicodemus that God's salvation, that God's love extends not just to the Jews, but to everybody, the Gentiles, the, 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 the Samaritans, the Greeks, all those who aren't just Jews. Rather, salvation is available for all. That God's salvation extends beyond Israel to all mankind. And then in John 3.16, we see that God's love was costly. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave, emphasis on gave, that he gave his only son. God's love for us was made visible by what? Jesus' death on the cross, the death of his son. Before the foundation of the world, God knew how much his love for the world would cost him. In Isaiah 53, we read this, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Talking about Jesus. It was his will to crush him. Or one translation says, He delighted in crushing him to cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Now that doesn't mean that, that God loves punishing Jesus, that he takes delight in his pain and sorrow, but rather saying that he delighted to crush him. Why? Because his life was an offering of sin for the world. That all who could call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That we can be reconciled through Jesus' death on the cross. One pastor said this, just as a supreme proof for Abraham's love for God was his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac, so also, but on a far grander scale, The Father's offering of His Son, Jesus, was the supreme manifestation of His saving love for sinners. The result of His costly love is eternal life for all those who believe. Right, That whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. I think sometimes we don't, we kind of make it like a fairy tale. Oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's so nice. It's It's so loving. Wow, it's so cute. Like how nice is that? But think about it for a second. His love was costly. It cost something. For God told the world that he gave his only son. And I want to talk about God's grace for a moment. God has the right and the authority to punish us, humanity, because of our sin, because of our rebellion. He's sinless. We are sinners. But verse 17 shows us a clear image of his grace. Right, a lot of people memorize John 3.16, and that, that's great. It's a great verse. But I think verse 17 is, is, is a lot more powerful. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn, to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Instead of pouring out his divine wrath on us, God the Father pours it out on Jesus while he's on the cross, bearing our sin and shame. 
Jesus' mission while he was living on earth for 33 years was to seek and to save the lost. It was a rescue mission for humanity, and the means of rescuing came through his sacrifice. It came through his death on the cross. There was a Jewish belief that when the Messiah would come, that God would, would judge the Gentiles, that he'll punish and condemn the Gentiles, and he'll redeem Israel. And I would believe that, that Nicodemus probably bought in and believed in that. But what Jesus is saying is there's redemption for all, both Jews and Gentiles. In Amos chapter 5, the prophet is speaking to the people what the Lord told him. And he says this, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Let me pause for a second. He's revealing to the Israelites, they're like, we just can't wait for the day of the Lord, and they're in sin and rebelling. We can't wait for the Lord. He's going to come and, and rescue us and save us, and he loves us, and, and he's going to judge all the Gentiles and all our enemies. And Amos says, Woe for, wh- no, why, why, are you gonna re- why do you wait and long for that? And he reveals that it'll be darkness, not night. He also says, it will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? And Amos is basically, it's, it's, it's a judgment verse here of you're longing for the Lord to come and judge the Gentiles and you think you're going to be spared from his judgment? You're, you're in sin. You're in rebellion for the Lord, of the Lord. And going back to John, verse 18, we'll continue here. We read this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We're all condemned in the sight of God because of our sin. But we see God's gift was not to bring judgment with Jesus' first coming, but rather salvation through Jesus Christ. Those who put their faith in him, they believe in him, they're saved through him. Now, catch how many times I said him and, and not me or you or I. Their faith in him, believe in him, and are saved through him. And in these few verses, John 3, 16, 17, 18, we'll see two important truths of the Bible that are, that are complementary. We see on the one hand God's sovereignty. That God saves us based entirely on his goodness and his grace. Not on our goodness, not on anything we can give him to attract him and his love for us. Rather, we're saved entirely based on who God is, his love for us. And on the flip side, we see man's responsibility. We have a response. We'll all be accountable to the question, who is Jesus? In verse 15, 16, and 18, twice, John, the author, says, whoever believes in, whoever believes in, whoever believes in, prompted by the Holy Spirit, believers receive salvation, and those who do not believe are held accountable to their unbelief. And it doesn't matter how good you are, how much you donate to charity, how much of a good person you you think you are, apart from saving faith in Jesus, you're condemned and will face God's ultimate judgment of sin. And Jesus, now as he ends his conversation, he reveals a third and final aspect of God's love, his judging love. God's judgment is love. Verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And we know the light from John chapter 1 is Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. 
the light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And in these final verses, we see God's judgment for those who reject the light, who are in the darkness. It says that they reject the light, they reject Jesus because they love their sin. Coming to Christ means being born again. We looked at that a few weeks ago in the first conversation, uh, in the beginning of the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. That means we deny ourselves daily, we follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new life, and we want to become more like Jesus. That's called sanctification. And what we see here is people reject the light, reject Jesus because they, they, they love their sin. They love it. They love their sin more than Jesus. The other aspect of that is they reject Jesus, the light, because he exposes their sin. Just as light reveals what is hidden in the dark, Jesus reveals the natural state of our hearts. Evil. Sinners. No one wants to hear that they're a sinner. Right? Like, it, it, it means that you're not good. It's a very offensive thing to say in today's culture. Well, I mean, I guess the line of things that have offended have shifted significantly to less. But the truth is, no one wants to hear that they're not good. No one wants to hear that they'll never be good enough on their own. Right? It's a very offensive thing. Sinners reject the light because they, they love the darkness. They, they, they love it. They're not accountable to Jesus. They're not accountable to God and, and, and the light. Rather, they want to stay where they're at because they love it. They choose it. Jesus contrasts light and darkness in this section to describe the judgment of those who are condemned. Unbelievers are not ignorant, but rather they, they willfully or willingly reject the truth. Their sin has consumed them because of their love for the darkness. They continue down the path of condemnation because of their rejection of God's free gift of eternal life. And I was listening to John Piper uh, he, he has a, like a podcast um, called uh, Ask Pastor John. And, and one of the quotes, I'll read both of the quotes he said, but it talks about judge God's judgment in hell. He, this is what he says, Everyone who perishes has chosen sin in such a way to be truly responsible for his choice and truly deserving of judgment. Following that, he says, No one will ever be in hell who does not deserve to be there. We, we know that God is just, but we also know that he's love. And they, those are complementary. They work together. In his justice, there's love. God is not unfair in his just, in his justness, in his justice, I should say. God never sends anyone to hell unjustly. And when we read about the judgment of God, we can look at it through two different lens or two different views. The first, we can look at that and say, Judgment makes God look mean and unfair. It makes him look mean, that, that, that people would, would be eternally separated from him in hell. It, make, it just makes him mean. Why would he do that? Or, judgment reveals God's love for us. I think that's the biblical way to view God's judgment. It reveals God's love for us. As the ultimate judge, God is both loving and truly just. 
in his justice we see his love. Both his justice, both his judgment and love are revealed perfectly on the cross where Jesus Christ died. God pours out his divine wrath upon Jesus. There's the justice for sin who took on our death, right? He, he took the bullet, he took the death penalty for us. There's justice. But what? He lovingly provided the sacrificial lamb for the atonement of our sins. There's his love. So when we look at the cross, we see the two sides, God's judgment and God's love. And they're complementary together. They're not contradictory. Just thinking of earthly judges, how good and loving would a judge be to the innocent victim's family by letting a murderer go free? His love for justice and the love for the innocent demands that the guilty be punished. It doesn't make him an unloving judge by punishing the guilty. It makes him a good and just judge. In the same way, Jesus or, or God is the ultimate judge. And in verse 21, the section ends with Jesus saying this, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So for the, those of us who are believers who are in the light, we, we hate our sin and we love righteousness. And more so, we, we can do that because of the Holy Spirit giving us our new heart, being born again. True saving faith manifests itself in deeds. And I, I know I say this over and over, but I want it to be clear. In, in, a fee, or in the ending of this verse, it says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us, who we are before Christ, that we're sinners, that we're dead in our trespasses, that we're dead in our sins, what Jesus did for us, he died on the cross, he, the grace of God has been given to us, and who we are after, he says in verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what this means is as believers, our faith should be visible to those around us. And let me make this clear. We're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by good deeds. That contradicts the Bible. We're saved by, by, by faith alone in Christ alone, right? By, by, by God's grace alone. But we're saved for good works. That the result of salvation will result in a heart that wants to please God. We'll be born again. We'll, we'll be sanctified, become more and more like Jesus. As we produce fruit or do good works, we should point others to God, not ourselves. And what that means is if someone says something or gives you a compliment for how you're living or something you've done, I would say this, don't, don't take it. Say, praise God, I want to tell you why I do that. And then there's your gospel moment to share the gospel. As we walk in the light, people will inevitably see the love of God in us and how we love others. And this is important. This means it matters how we treat people. It matters how we talk to one another. It matters how we talk or love others. Right? You can't just say, I love Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins, and, and I, I want to obey his commandments, and I, you know, I want to worship him all the time, and then on the flip side, go out and hate people and, and, and have that be your, your, your lifestyle or your habit of lifestyles, constantly showing not grace to people, not love to people. It contradicts. Why? Because we're commanded to love, to love one another just as Jesus has loved us. So for us as Christians, it matters 
how we live our lives. It matters how we treat others, how we talk to one another, how we love other people. Why? Because through that, we can show them what it looks like to be a believer, what it looks like to love the Lord by loving others. So again, as we finished up this section, we see God's love in, in, in a threefold way that, that, that Jesus reveals to Nicodemus. We see that God has a gracious love, that God's love was costly, and that he, in his judgment, it reveals his love for us. So I want to say this as, as Christians, don't give up. Don't be weary. It matters how we treat people. It matters how we love them. Why? Because we should be salt and light to the world, to the community around us. And let me just say this, if you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer, this is God's word, not mine. You're going to spend an eternity without him in hell, which is a real physical place. It's not a metaphor, it's not a symbol. This isn't a scare tactic, it's just what the gospel is. That because Jesus Christ died on the cross, we could put our faith, our hope, and trust in him as our Savior. And according to John's gospel, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's the good news of John's gospel. Let's pray. I'll invite the worship team if, if they want to make their way back to the stage. God, we just thank you so much for your love for us. I know for myself, sometimes I just, I, I overlook it. I, I, I just, I say, oh, that's nice, and I move on. But just from these words, from, from your word this morning, we see how much your love cost you. That you sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior, not because we're good, but because you are good. You are a God who saves, a God who gives us divine grace, a God who's made a way for us to be reconciled, and it's through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, not anything that we can do. So God, I just pray for anybody who's not a believer this morning, that they can just truly think and wrestle through what was said this morning. I pray, Lord, that through the Holy Spirit they could come to the realization that they need a Savior and the beauty of the Gospel is our Savior has been sent, that Jesus, you are our living Savior who died on the cross for our sins. For those of us who are believers, I pray that you continue to encourage us, encourage us to live out our faith. It's easy to say we believe something, but it's a challenge to live it out. I pray, Lord, for boldness to live out our faith. I pray for courage. I pray, Lord, for gospel conversations this week. I pray that even as we live our lives, people can look at us, and even if they come and talk to us, I pray that you give us wisdom and discernment to point them to you and to glorify you. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for dying for us. We thank you that salvation is available for all those who call upon your name, for those who believe in you. Amen.